So today's topic is community-acquired pneumonia. We have four learning objectives to get through. One, identify the mechanism by which patients become infected with community-acquired pneumonia, CAP. Two, discuss selection of empiric therapy and CAP in the context of commonly implicated pathogens. Three, describe the clinical features suggestive that coverage of atypical pathogens would be necessary. And four, apply knowledge of CAP to a patient case. So CAP is a pneumonia that onsets in the community or within 48 hours of hospitalization when the patient's tracheal flora is still reflective of a community flora. If we think back to our bugs and drugs lecture, this flora consists of predominantly gram-positive microbes and most notably streptococci. The timing of onset of infection is key as the defining feature of a CAP versus hospital-acquired pneumonia. If a patient has been hospitalized for longer than 48 hours, their tracheal flora has shifted to hospital flora, which includes microbes like staphylococcus and gram-negative bacilli. Since most pneumonia starts with either a microaspiration or gross aspiration event, if a patient has been hospitalized for more than 48 hours at the time of infection, they've aspirated different organisms than if they aspirated in the community or when their tracheal flora is still a community flora. So this is why it's important to look closely at timing of infection onset. Community onset pneumonia, when caused by bacteria, is mostly caused by streptococcus, or if the patient has structural lung disease, may be caused by respiratory gram-negative cocci, haemophilus, or moraxella. Whereas HAP, hospital-acquired pneumonia, is caused by totally different and more resistant microbes. And this is an important point for antimicrobial stewardship, because to be cautious, sometimes practitioners will round up to a hospital-acquired pneumonia if a patient has had contact with the healthcare system or if they were admitted to hospital in the last 90 days. But the literature doesn't support this, and it doesn't mechanistically make all that much sense. We used to have an intermediate category of pneumonia called HCAP, healthcare-associated pneumonia, which encompassed those middle-ground patients that make everyone so nervous. But in 2016, the guidelines undertook a meta-analysis to identify whether HCAP was really predictive of gram-negative pneumonia or more resistant pneumonia. Ultimately, HCAP was removed from the guidelines because it was not found to be predictive of infection with an MDRO, multidrug-resistant organism. These patients were still more likely to have strep pneumonia than other bacteria. Their trachea was not colonized with MDRO gram-negative bacilli just because they'd had some contact with healthcare. If a patient's pneumonia onsets in the community within 48 hours of admission or more than 48 hours of hospital discharge, they actually have a community-acquired pneumonia, and we should treat it accordingly. And I mean, medicine isn't black and white, and guidelines are just guidelines, so we should still use some clinical judgment. If you have a patient who was discharged three days ago, after six months in hospital, and is going to ICU in septic shock from what is technically a cap, then obviously broader therapy is appropriate, and you can treat broadly empirically, then de-escalate pursuant to cultures and per the clinical course. What antimicrobial stewardship teams often see in practice is hemodynamically stable patients who were discharged a month ago being admitted to medicine ward, and getting treated with piptazo for a HAP, or a dialysis patient with community-acquired pneumonia being treated with piptazo on the basis of the healthcare system contact. And the literature does not support this. We should talk about the role of viruses now, because we've mostly focused on bacteria, when really we have literature estimating that viruses account for more than 50% of CAP cases. And that literature was from before COVID. With the advent of COVID, viruses are probably way over the 50% threshold. Right, and treating viral lower respiratory tract infections with antibiotics is a significant contributor to unnecessary antibiotic use. But it can be very difficult to distinguish between viral and bacterial CAP. We can't do it from x-ray findings. In other places, we now have some biomarkers like procalcitonin that can help us distinguish viral from bacterial pneumonia. But this is fairly expensive and hasn't been adopted locally here in Alberta. So here, what can we do to help us distinguish viral from bacterial CAP? Well, we saw during COVID waves that the history of sick contacts can help us. Patients sometimes can remember being exposed to somebody with viral symptoms, which might point us in that direction. And if the patient has additional viral symptoms, like flu-like symptoms, that can also support a diagnosis of possible viral infection. 
If we have a suspicion of viral infection, or really if we're admitting somebody with community-acquired pneumonia during the winter months, we should order a viral NPS. Not just a COVID swab, but a full viral panel. Because RSV, metanumovirus, and influenza, while they became significantly less common during COVID, are still relevant causes of CAP and are making a comeback again. And a positive viral PCR can help us cut down on unnecessary antibiotics and communicate expectations and prognosis more clearly to patients. That's probably one positive of the COVID pandemic. People are less likely to forget the role of viruses going forward and more likely to remember to do a viral NPS. In Emerge, we were swabbing people right away during COVID waves. Yep, it's pretty unlikely post-2020 that anybody will ever forget the role of viruses in CAP. To further discuss CAP, let's consider the following case. A 61-year-old male presents to the emergency department with significant dyspnea, desatting on room air to the mid-80s. This gentleman is known to you for COPD and has had two previous acute exacerbation episodes this year already, which he managed as an outpatient with the support of his family doctor. His last exacerbation, which was four months ago, was treated with amoxicillin for three days. His family doctor subsequently gave him a COPD action plan for future exacerbations, but he has not used this until now. He reports tactile fevers at home for the last 48 hours and worsening respiratory symptoms, including breathlessness, chest pain with inspiration, and sputum production that is dark yellow-green and irregular for him. He started his COPD action plan medications today, including doxycycline and prednisone, but woke up feeling extremely unwell, fatigued, with chills and raggers. This morning, his daughter came over with her children and noticed her father was struggling to breathe and unable to clear his airways. She took his temperature, which was 38.8 degrees, and she brought him into hospital accordingly. For his vitals, he's at 39.1 degrees right now. His rest rate is 29 a minute. His O2 sats are 84% on room air, but are up to 94% with 6 liters a minute of O2 by face mask. Hemodynamically, he's stable. For his review of systems, it's relatively unremarkable. He has mild accessory muscle use and shortness of breath. Expiratory wheezes are heard on auscultation and decreased air entry to the bases. He has crackles to the right side. His relevant past medical history includes COPD with an FEV1 to FVC ratio of 45%, an AECOPD action plan at home, prednisone 50 mg PO daily times 5 days, plus doxycycline 100 mg PO BID. He also has hypertension and coronary artery disease. He has a smoking history of one pack per day for 45 years and has cut back recently to half a pack per day. He has no recent sick contacts. For his vaccines, he's received Prevnar 23 and he's been COVID vaccinated times four. And this is one setting where the vaccine history is important. COPD patients should get their strep pneumonia vaccination and influenza vaccines to reduce risk of hospitalization for CAP. His investigations show on x-ray, his hyperinflated airways, his dense right middle lobe and right lower lobe consolidation. An EKG that was done, given his cardiac history, shows nothing acute. His labs show white blood cells of 17.8, neutrophils 15.4, his CRP is 298. He has normal lights, his tropes are negative, his BNP is 214, his D-dimer is 786. Tox screen is negative. For cultures, his sputum culture was not done by eMERGE as they felt it would be low yield. His viral PCR is pending. So to summarize, we have a patient who presents with fever, respiratory symptoms, elevated inflammatory markers, and a positive chest x-ray in the setting of known COPD. He has two previous exacerbations this year, one of which required antibiotics. 
He doesn't seem to have a cardiac cause of respiratory symptoms here, and the infectious symptoms are pretty clear. So let's discuss our top three potential diagnoses for this patient. And like always, the clinical decision-making matrix of our differential diagnoses is attached to the podcast. COPD exacerbation is one possibility worth discussing, but it is important to note that his positive chest x-ray and systemic infectious features would point strongly away from AECOPD as a plausible cause of his clinical picture. Recall that while patients with bacterial COPD exacerbation will have purulent sputum, this is an airway inflammatory process and should not be accompanied by a positive chest x-ray. Our patient has a positive chest x-ray and clear systemic features of infection, so we probably aren't looking at AECOPD. Okay, so a different respiratory process that would produce fevers and some of his symptoms, PE. PE is definitely worth considering, especially in a patient with an active smoking history. He does have a slightly elevated D-dimer, but it's not pronounced elevation despite meeting the cutoff as technically being positive. And while a negative D-dimer is useful to rule out DVT and PE, A positive or elevated D-dimer is far less interpretable, since it is such a nonspecific finding with numerous possible etiologies. And his increased sputum purulence isn't explained by a PE, and his fevers are pretty high-grade and persistent to be a PE. His inflammatory markers are also quite elevated for a pulmonary embolism. A CRP of around 300 is pretty high. Accordingly, this picture is not really likely to be explained by a pulmonary embolism. So then, finally, our most obvious diagnosis, given his positive chest X-ray, respiratory symptoms, and systemic infectious symptoms all in the context of structural lung disease and active smoking, CAP is pretty high on the differential. His consistent, fairly high-grade fevers with purulent sputum and no other localizing symptoms outside of the lungs are consistent with a primary infectious process of the lungs. You may even be thinking that this is too obvious a case of CAP compared to the CAP that usually gets admitted to hospital or treated in hospital when patients don't have systemic infectious features like this patient. Frequently, Patients are diagnosed with CAP on the basis of chest x-ray findings alone and then treated. It's worth remembering that while elderly patients and patients on immunosuppressives may not mount robust inflammatory responses, patients presenting with pneumonia severe enough to produce respiratory symptoms that bring them to hospital should have associated systemic infectious features in most cases. This is important to keep in mind because there are so many other common clinical conditions that can lead to consolidation on chest x-ray and respiratory symptoms, such as heart failure. So really, we should have some systemic features pointing to an infectious process, along with respiratory symptoms and a consolidation on chest x-ray, to really be suspecting a pneumonia. And despite the fact that chest x-rays are often interpreted as having a mnemonic consolidation, pneumonia is a clinical diagnosis and should not be made on the basis of a chest x-ray alone. So we've established that our patient has a probable community-acquired pneumonia. How would we treat him? There are some complicating features here in his medical history that deserve discussion, namely his previous antibiotic use a few months ago for AECOPD, and also that he's already started antibiotics this morning. So with respect to how we would treat him, we need to think through what pathogens we expect to cause community-acquired pneumonia, because that will direct our treatment, like always. Viruses are one possibility, and we have a viral swab pending, which will help us reassess this. From a bacteria standpoint, if we think back to our Bugs and Drugs podcast, our main pathogen is strep pneumonia. Because this gentleman has structural lung disease, the gram-negative cocci, such as Haemophilus influenza or Moraxella cateralis, recall these are our respiratory gram-negatives, are also relevant to consider. Before determining empiric therapy, let's evaluate his previous antibiotic use because that can impact our choice too. Fortunately, he's not used antibiotics in the preceding 90 days, which in the literature is a more strongly predisposing factor for antibiotic resistance. That said, he has been exposed to antibiotics in the past year. So while Haemophilus is susceptible to straight amoxicillin in some cases, in his case, Haemophilus would be more likely to produce beta-lactamases. That is to say, more likely to be resistant to straight amoxicillin. 
So we would want to go a bit broader than amoxicillin in this patient who's being admitted with CAP and has risk factors for beta-lactamase positive gram-negative cocci. So we would need something like ceftriaxone, amoxiclav, or even doxycycline to cover the strep pneumonia, along with respiratory gram-negatives. Would sputum culture help us at all here? Like Emerge noted, sputum culture would be low yield in this gentleman. Generally, we would only do a sputum culture in patients with CAP if they're going to ICU, or if they fail to respond to empiric therapy, or if they have strong risk factors for MDROs, like MRSA or Pseudomonas. Our patient only had one course of amoxicillin this year, and it was four months ago, not a strong risk factor. Some other less common circumstances that might prompt us to obtain sputum culture would be if the patient had cavitations on chest x-ray with an acute onset picture, because then we'd be worried about staph aureus, which can produce cavitary pneumonia or other pathogens that wouldn't be covered by our usual empiric therapy. But for the most part, outside of these select circumstances, sputum cultures aren't usually sufficient yield to be worthwhile. But our patient had started doxycycline before he came in. So would we draw sputum cultures on the grounds that he failed to respond to empiric therapy? The timing of starting doxycycline reassures us that he hasn't failed empiric therapy. He just started doxycycline this morning and he's had all of one dose. So this wouldn't be antibiotic failure. That said, while doxycycline covers the most probable organisms, because the patient's quite weak and unwell with minimal oral intake, it would be reasonable to start the patient on IV ceftriaxone and step down once his fevers have shown response to antibiotics. And then once he's improved, per our usual criteria, doxycycline or amoxiclav would be reasonable oral options for step-down for a total course of about five days. Yeah, and since he didn't fail doxycycline, I would most likely step him back down to doxycycline to complete his course on that, to avoid exposing him unnecessarily to more antibiotics. We would also encourage good oral hygiene as well as smoking cessation, which can help improve his ciliary clearance and reduce damage to local host defenses that protect against pneumonia. Now, what about atypical coverage? Something I noticed in Emerge was that some physicians would add azithromycin or doxycycline to ceftriaxone for atypical coverage of CAP, while some wouldn't. If we are giving this patient ceftriaxone, we don't have atypical coverage. Would we need it? There's variable practice with respect to coverage of atypical pathogens across the country. Think back to the Bugs and Drugs podcast again. Atypical pathogens include microbes like chlamydophila, mycoplasma, and legionella, which don't have the normal bacterial cell wall. Previously, indiscriminate atypical coverage for CAP was more frequently done, but a lot of centers have moved away from this. It is recognized now that the majority of patients hospitalized with CAP do not require atypical coverage in the absence of clinical features suggestive of an atypical organism. Many atypicals that cause pneumonia like chlamydophila wouldn't make patients sick enough to present to hospital. And for the atypicals that would, like mycoplasma or legionella, we have clinical features that can point us to when we should cover instead of covering indiscriminately. So we don't cover atypicals indiscriminately now, and we instead rely on clinical course to dictate whether or not we should cover? Yeah, unless they're going to ICU. If they're going to ICU, we do just cover atypical pathogens for all patients. But otherwise, we rely on clinical course and community outbreaks to help inform our decision-making around the need for empiric atypical coverage. For instance, mycoplasma and legionella may be relevant to consider, especially in select patient populations, but they often have distinct clinical courses and are associated with community outbreaks. So for mycoplasma infection, that distinct clinical course includes pronounced non-purulent hacking cough persistent over days to even weeks. Mycoplasma infection is also sometimes accompanied by mild hemoptysis. It is more common in school-aged children than adults, though the elderly have predisposition as well. And often it's the mechanical act of coughing that causes more discomfort to the patient than the illness itself. It produces a real hacking cough. Okay, so that's mycoplasma. For Legionella, clinical features include high-grade fever with relative bradycardia accompanied by GI symptoms, hyponatremia, and elevated ferritin. Legionella also often occurs in outbreaks associated with contaminated fountains or aerosolized water supply. Infections are most common in spring and summer as opposed to fall and winter, like other bacterial caps. 
I've only seen confirmed Legionella a few times, even after several years of ID and AMS clinical work. I will say that when I've seen it, the patients always did have those GI symptoms, but this might just be because those are the patients we remember to test for Legionella. In the literature, the true prevalence of concomitant GI symptoms is around 20 to 30%. But generally, patients with Legionella pneumonia do have fairly high-grade fevers and the mild hyponatremia mentioned. And the time of year matters. Legionella infection is much more common in the spring and summer months. So to summarize, we would cover atypicals in the following scenarios. One, if a patient is going to ICU and we cannot risk not covering the pathogen. Two, if the patient presents after relevant exposure, for example, last year in Vancouver, there was a Legionella outbreak in New Westminster due to a fountain. At that time, having a higher index of suspicion for needing coverage of Legionella was reasonable. Three, If the patient has clinical features consistent with Legionella infection, as described above, or clinical features consistent with mycoplasma infection. Let's say typical coverage in a nutshell. Okay, another comment. In practice and eMERGE, I've seen lots of patients like the ones we've just talked about with COPD and previous antibiotic exposure present with pneumonia, and often they're given piptazo as empiric therapy. I think this sort of relates to HCAP and its removal from guidelines that we talked about before. In practice, we still sometimes see blanket statements about the patient having increased risk of resistant organisms and needing a broader spectrum antibiotic like Piptazo to treat their cap because of healthcare exposure or any history of antibiotic use. But for most of these patients, we don't need to cover resistant gram-negative bacilli, so we don't need a big gun like Piptazo. While antibiotic exposure in the previous 90 days can predispose to more resistant organisms, we would only consider this if our patient was going to ICU or in respiratory failure. Patients being admitted to the medical ward should for the most part be treated as standard cap with ceftriaxone, amoxclav, or possibly doxycycline, all of which cover strep pneumoniae, H. influenzae, and Moraxella cateralis. Speaking from an eMERGE lens, often we don't have a lot of data on our patient yet, and things move quickly. So I think it can just be really tempting when dealing with a febrile patient with clear signs of infection to cover more broadly than we need, just to feel comfortable with ourselves that we're not missing anything. Emerges its own world and has a lot of challenges, but I think it's important to remember that all of our antibiotic use adds up. If we catch ourselves giving Piptazo to treat CAP habitually, as opposed to Piptazo being something we uncommonly order because of clear individual patient risk factors and severe presentation, we should check ourselves. Remember that even ICU order sets for CAP with septic shock have ceftriaxone and azithromycin as first-line treatment. So for patients with a history of MDRO or severe bronchiectasis who are going to ICU, it may be reasonable to give broader spectrum therapy because they could plausibly be colonized with more resistant gram negatives, and if they're critically ill, we can't afford to miss covering the causative pathogen but we should ensure that we are considering the evidence when we choose treatments for our patients. Just because a patient has had some contact with the healthcare system or has used antibiotics in the past year doesn't mean that their trachea is currently colonized with ESBL E. coli or Klebsiella or any MDRO gram-negative bacilli. And it certainly doesn't mean that they require something as broad as Piptazo to cover a cap. So basically, we would have to have reason to believe that they fall in the gray area of the literature and their trachea may be colonized with gram-negative bacilli and they're legitimately sick enough that missing a gram-negative could mean they imminently succumb to their pneumonia. Right. So it will be appropriate for the occasional patient, like a nursing home patient going to the ICU. But there should be nuanced decision-making that goes into this. And in practice, we see a lot more empiric piptazo use for CAP than what's plausibly necessary. So for today's podcast take-homes, number one, CAP is a pneumonia that onsets in the community or within 48 hours of admission to hospital. Two, Viruses cause more than 50% of CAP cases. Among bacteria, strep pneumonia is the number one causative pathogen to CAP. 3. Patients admitted with CAP should have a viral NPS done, but most don't need sputum cultures. 4. 
The majority of patients admitted with CAP can be treated with IV ceftriaxone or oral amoxiclav and do not require atypical coverage in the absence of a clinical course suggesting atypical pathogen involvement. 5. Oral step-down to amoxiclav, doxycycline, or cefuroxime can be considered in patients once they've shown some improvement in fevers, inflammatory markers, plus or minus respiratory symptoms. So thanks for listening. Our next podcast is Hospital Acquired Pneumonia. 